couple of friends that were in special ops and, and they would do, uh, whether it was tours or what their duty, but wherever they were, like if they were in like jungles and whatnot, you know, one of the things that you would do when you're in jungles and when there's lions and cats, you know, large cats around, they would tell you is that you put your sunglasses, you know, on your, on the back of your hat. Basically, and what that would look like if a cat was, because a lot of times these cats will come up from behind and attack you. But putting by switching the sunglasses is basically representing that there's a set of eyes in the back of your head looking out. That was George Daniel making an analogy between cats in the jungle and flies for predatory fish. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. I wanted to give a quick shout out to a new patron this week, Tyler T. Thank you for your support. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. In today's episode, I interview George Daniel from livingonthefly.com. We get into a nice discussion about one of his big mentors, Joe Humphreys, and uh, the influence he's had on his life. We also talk about why his big passion is set around fishing muskie now uh, what his teaching philosophy is all about, and his take on competitive fly fishing. Don't miss this as George gives us the best resource for understanding entomology and the bugs in your stream. Before I get into the episode today, I wanted to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. The Gray Drake produces beautiful vintage fly boxes and wallets that are handmade in the USA. Made with sustainable cork, reducing environmental impacts, and still providing for the highest quality product. A portion of all proceeds go to local fish conservation. Go to thegraydrake.com to get started today. We are also brought to you by the Portland Fly Shop, which is your winter steelhead headquarters. They stock all of the top brands and a huge selection of fly tying materials. Conveniently located right off Gleason Street uh, on off of 405, it's always great to walk into the store when you're greeted by a friendly dog and a uh, and personalized service. So uh, head over to theportlandflyshop.com or stop in and see him today. So without further ado, here's George Daniel from livingonthefly.com. How's it going, George? It's going great, Dave. Yourself? Good. Good to have you on. We, um, yeah, we're, you've got a, you know, when you look at your career or your experience fly fishing, you've got a pretty diverse background, lots of books. Lots of, uh, I mean, just a lot of information out there on all sorts of different topics. Um, I'm hoping today, you know, we can dig a little bit into a little bit of the teaching uh, philosophy because that's pretty much what you do. And, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there that love to learn from you. Um, before we get into it, do you want to start with um, a little bit on your background, how you got into fly fishing? Yeah, pretty simple. It was, you know, probably six years old was when I caught my first fish on the fly. But essentially, I grew up in a north central Pennsylvania trout town. It was a little tributary that uh, dumped into a, a well-known trout stream called Kettle Creek. But long story short, it was a kids only section. I was the only kid in the town that fished. So I had my own private brook trout fishery uh, up until I was about 14 years old. And uh my my father introduced me to fishing, but my mom was the one that kind of really encouraged me and, and took me out and kind of nourished that excitement. But basically, the I would say the environment 
more than anything else, created the Angler. Uh, we were a one-car family. My dad worked outside of town quite a bit. So I was stuck in this remote village. It's actually a village in uh, north central PA. And that's all I had to do was just kind of fish and hunt uh, early in my days. Um, and that was it was a good way to grow up as a kid. So I definitely would say that the, the place where I grew up really created the angler in me. Mm-hmm. And and so and then where as you went along and you're now where are you at now located? I'm in State College, Pennsylvania. So if anyone's familiar with like with Penn State University, in from a geographic standpoint, if you were to put a pin in the dead center part of Pennsylvania, that's where I'm at. So we have a we have pretty much a rural community where I'm at. Lots of rolling hills. When people think about Pennsylvania, they think like Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, metropolitan, urban areas. But where where I'm at is very rural, right outside the state college. Any like 20 minutes in either direction, it's farmlands. Uh, we have like an 18 acre piece of property right here. We have lots of Amish neighbors, lots of small rolling hills, mostly elevated. Uh, the, the mountains we call them here are probably like 22, 2300 feet. Not really mountains, so to speak, but uh, they are by East Coast standards. But just lots of green. And in every one of those little valleys, there's all kinds of nooks and crannies. In every one of those little valleys, there's there's water, and most of them are trout streams. And if I remember correctly, I think Pennsylvania has more wa- miles of trout water than any other stream in the lower 48. Now, now granted, it, it's skewed. I mean, we've got little thing, these little intermittent streams that are, you know, two three feet wide that hold trout. But we have uh, lots and lots of trout water uh, where, mm-hmm. I, where I live. Mm-hmm. And and then so as you got into it, how did you get into Foley uh, into where like where you're at now with all your you know everything you've written and done over the years? How how did that all develop into uh, you know a full time? Well, I don't know if it's a full time job, but but you know kind of your career. You're, do you mostly guide now? I would say within the last three four years, uh, I kind of had a long after graduate school. I worked for the state of Pennsylvania. I did stream restoration work, habitat enhancement. So I, I had a good run with the state for about six years doing that, and then had a full time job with a local fly shop, TCO Fly Shop. And either I was the assistant manager or managed that shop for a total of six years. And then just about four years ago, I went into guiding full time. Now I've been guiding and doing lessons and educations and programs since I was eighteen, but I just kind of took the leap of faith about four years ago and, and went into into it full time. But it's it's been a good run. I mean, I had I've had phenomenal teachers, and I would say probably a guy named Joe Humphreys, uh, who actually just turned mm-hmm. turned ninety, um, and now they just did a, a a story about him called "Live the Stream." But he's uh, a ninety year old man now that's traveling around like a rock star doing all these uh you know films uh, uh these film de- uh, debuts all across the country right now showing his his documentary which is great but joe took me under his wing when i was really about 18 19 and he really got me into not only just teaching me how to become a better angler but he was an educator he he taught the angling course at penn state university and he took a lot of his time and and taught me how to teach and and educate and entertain people so i would say just the influence of joe alone was kind of was the was the part of my life that really jump-started me to want to become an educator or an educator in fly fishing mm-hmm. wow so yeah you were uh, as far as mentors had had one of the best uh, probably you know uh, that, that you can imagine what um 
so that's pretty cool. Now, and and Joe, I, I actually just recently interviewed uh, Frank Moore, who's uh, kind of on the steelhead side of it, but kind of similar, ninety five years old. <laughs> he's the same thing, man. His, you know, he's got the handshake that pretty much, you know, he feels like he's, uh, you know, still a young buck out there and everything. But um, now, what do you think with, with Joe? So, what was the biggest thing that he taught you when you look at kind of education and teaching and that, and that whole philosophy? Well, Joe, the one thing I like about Joe is he's he's legit. Um, you know, there are there are people that are good writers that are not necessarily good anglers, uh, and vice versa. But Joe was one that you know he's written several books. He wrote art magazine articles. He did a, a number of DVDs. But he was he, he's someone who walked the walk when he uh, when he talked about a technique or anything in his writing. It was something that he had spent years actually kind of refining down to perfection. So Joe, you know, basically taught me to be or uh, to have credibility. Basically, you know, he, he said anytime you talk about a subject, uh, whether it's in your writing or to a group, you need to be credible. You need to be able to actually do what you're saying, uh, which is not always the case, and uh, not just in our field, but in a lot of fields. And, you know, the other thing about Joe, you know, Joe was tough love. The thing I love about Joe is, I mean, he was a former boxer. He wrestled uh, for Penn State. Uh, he's just a tough guy. A, a similar thing to Frank. He has kind of a, a gridlock handshake. I mean, even at 90, he could. But what's cool is, like, part of that documentary, Joe was even, I mean, there's a guy named Cal Sanderson who's the, the wrestling coach at Penn State. They've won, like, four or five of the last national championships. But Cal's a fisherman. Joe, you know, is a big wrestling fan. So Joe's, like, even at, like, 89 last year, he was on the mat with some of the national champions. Obviously, he wasn't going full speed, but uh, he's just, he's got excitement. Uh, and he, he just loves life, and he loves to learn. And I think that's one of the secrets to guys like Frank and Joe, the reason why the, their longevity is so great is because they're always looking forward to that next step, learning something new, fishing new water. And, and I think that's, it's a great metaphor, not just for fishing, but for life too, is actually having something to look forward to, like some, a purposeful life. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that Joe taught me was to actually look forward to the things in fly fishing are immense because there's always something to learn. And, and if you were, if you just sit down and relax and, and take in the lessons that come to you, it's going to get you excited to learn the, the next lesson. And in doing so, you're going to have a, a, a purposeful life and hopefully a, a long and healthy life as well. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think it is that you uh, look forward to most when it comes to fly fishing or life? What, what, what kind of keeps you going? Well, you know, I'm an introvert that I, I love people. I, I really do. I, I just, you know, it, I guess it's small dosage, but I, I really, the one thing about guiding and education is you get to meet some pretty interesting folks and just, you know, from CEOs to truck drivers to mechanics, I mean, just people from all walks of life and the, the melting pot uh, and what brings all these people together is this thing we call fly fishing. And so I, I'm, I'm always fascinated to actually hear about people's stories. I, I just, everyone's got a great story and I'm always willing to listen to it. It, it kind of keeps me excited about learning uh, from the next person. But then too, with, with fishing, there's always, there's always something to be, to learn. So whether it's hanging out with like, 
fishing with great anglers, like with Lance or mm-hmm. you know, Lance Beach and Devin Olson. I think Devin was on your podcast. Yeah. Um, and Or even like clients, uh, a client showing you one of their favorite patterns or uh, a mistake that they made that actually got them into a fish that kind of created this whole new approach to the way you guide. So long story short, like every time I'm on the water, there's always something to be doing to be learned. And I journal uh, extensively. I think, you know, it's not like I'll journal 20, 30 minutes a day, but every, after every trip, there's usually like one or two sticking points, talking points that I'll, I'll write down. Uh, so, and to be honest with you, the great thing about what I do with writing is, you know, I'm starting to do a lot more writing. Like I have a blog now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not planning on making any money off it, but it, it's just like, bot, like running is to the body. I think writing is to the mind. It's, it's good exercise for it. And uh, the thing I really like about the fly fishing is it, it, it keeps you relevant in the sense that there's always something to be learned and it allows you to focus on those things during your writing process. So it gives me countless material, uh, basically, mm-hmm. when I'm uh, by just uh, guiding, basically, because people have all these, so many people, there's there's a lot of common problems that people have with fly fishing, but then also uh, there's a lot of unique problems that people have, you know, just the way that they hold the rod and so forth, and all of that, um, what you are as a fly fishing guide and instructor is a, is a problem solver. You have to look at each situation scenario differently and really become like a consultant and try to help them out to the best of your ability. And in doing so, again, it just it gives you so much material to work with. So that's that's one of, one of the reasons why I, I do what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned writing. I actually just uh, well, uh, I interviewed John Girock uh, in episode forty seven, and we talked quite a bit about you know his writing, his background, and you know he's obviously written a number of really great books. And um, yeah, but it was I dug in pretty deep, and I think maybe some people wanted to hear more about fishing. But I was just interested in hearing his writing process, and he he shared a few really good tips of of books and writers that that helped him, you know, get there. But it, it sounds like it sounds like you obviously you've kind of got an education, you've done plenty of writing. I mean, what have you written? Um, I mean, you've got books, magazines. Is there anything that sticks out as something that you're, you know, kind of most proud of, or something that you really, you know, really uh, re- resonated with you? Oh, uh, you know, over other things. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I would say probably my most my most recent blogs are probably some of my best writing. It's just, you know, the thing, you know, it, it's tough for me to call myself a writer because John Girard. I mean, he. I mean, he is a writer and. <laughs> The, the, the thing about the, th- the thing about John is he's he's a he's a crossover writer. So people who don't even fly fish, his writing is so good that people who don't even fly fish will still read his work just because of how he can paint the picture and paint the scenario. What I what I am is more of a technical writer. So you know a- any idiot uh, can basically talk about what they see, um, and, and that's kind of what I do. And, and it's not to put myself down, but it, it's a completely different category. Uh, what he does, because what he's doing, he's he's putting characters and he's telling the storyline. And it, there's a lot more work that goes involved with his type of writing versus mine. But with with mine, it's what I focus in on is the people who I look up to. I look outside of fly fishing. One of my favorite coaches of all time, period, was a guy named John Wooden. You know, and John coached UCLA, but John wrote a number of books, uh, mostly on leadership, but some on basketball. But Joe, or yeah, Coach John Wooden was a very clear and concise coach, 
the way he talked and coached his, his kids, but then also when he writes or when he wrote, it was very clear and concise. So I try to mimic my writing after how John Coach Wooden would, would write with his fishing books, just simple to the point. And, and, and with fly fishing, there's so many barriers. You know, it, people try to make it as complicated uh, sometimes. They, they overword. They try to exaggerate just a little too much. Basically, I just try to take the most basic concept and explain why things happen. You know, with, with fishing, people often just want like a cookie cutter recipe. You know, if, if you want to fish your nymphs under indicator, it's always one and a half times depth. <laughs> that that's that works. Don't get me wrong, that works. But what when I when I write, I try to teach people how to think, not to tell them what to do, but basically teach them how to think about looking at the scenarios, looking at the the variables, how. You know, how you rig is going to affect your drift. So I, I basically tried to write the way Coach John Wooden, and, and I'm not even comparing myself. I, I just strive to be as good of an educator as Coach mm-hmm. John Wooden. And and that's the one thing about life, too. Again, you're always looking forward to something. So my writing is adequate. It can get the job done, but I know I can do so much better. So I actually have a friend right now who's a who's – a, a literary teacher at a local community college about a couple hours away, but he's been, he's starting to coach me on writing. Uh, so every time I'm doing blogs, I'll send a blog his way and he'll critique it. I mean, it, you know, it's sometimes below the belt, which is very well, you know, very well deserved on my part, but I'm, uh, I'm always looking to, to get better, whether I'm teaching or writing. So hopefully, hopefully my writing is getting better now throughout the years, uh, uh, with practice and also with the right coach. Yep. Yep. No, it's good. It's, it's good to hear your, you know, I think that's what uh, separates the people, you know, the good ones from the people not so good is that they're always striving to, to get better at their craft. And yeah, we've talked actually quite a bit, you know, about writing on here. I've had all sorts of different uh, editors of different magazines and things like that. And, you know, I think the biggest take home message is, um, is just doing the work, you know, you, you gotta, you know, you gotta read, <laughs> you gotta write a lot you gotta keep writing and then that, that's the way you become good. You know, you become a better writer. And, and so, I mean, I think that's just for life and anything really, that's kind of the way it is fly fishing, right? You gotta, you gotta get out there and fly fish. But, um, so I, I wanted to check in a little bit with you on, we talked a little bit about, you know, and again, teaching s- sticking on that, uh, that topic with kids, you know, is, is there a different, um, when you kind of think about, you know, teaching kids, um, you know, how do you get started? Maybe you can talk about a few tips, um, you know, for people that maybe have kids and they want to get them into fly fishing. And then as you get into that, maybe we can talk about this five to six week road trip you took with your kids, which is, which is pretty amazing. I mean, that's a, a month, month and a half of a road trip. That's, that sounds like there's gotta be some good action there. And how old are your kids? Um, they're, they're actually one is, is eight. The other one will be 10 here in a couple months, but uh, we've been doing this with our kids now since they were basically six and eight, respectively. So for the last couple of years, we once they once they were like six and eight, they were old enough that we could take them on the road. And um, and so what? So six and eight, and what's the difference between six and eight versus uh, you know four and six? As so, far as, yeah. So at least with you know with our kids, it was to the point where the kids could be outside for an extended period of time without whining, without complaining. And 
you know, they can they can they can walk in uh, probably eighty percent of the water or the the environment that we went in. So mm. they basically they basically could take care of themselves for the most part. Uh, you know, obviously there were places where you need to wade and, and kind of help them out. But once they were able to become a little more self-sustaining themselves, that was when uh, I knew we could take them out. And, and but we we live close to trout water and we have a pond on our on our property. So. We, we fish with the kids every day. Um, you know, our old house that we lived on, lived at, we had a trout stream literally about 50 yards away from our house. So every evening, the kids were out on the water fishing with me. So eventually, we, we got a handle and, and to a point where we could just sense when when they were ready to go on, on a big road trip with us. But, you know, with, with teaching kids, I mean, what works for one group of kids is not going to necessarily work for the other. But Essentially, I kind of did exactly the opposite thing of what my old man did. My father was a very impatient old bastard, was not <laughs> a very teacher. And what I wanted to do was this. The one thing I realized that when, when my father took me fishing, he also wanted to fish at the same time, which I think is when you are trying to get the kid, teach your kids or any kid to fish, the focus has got to be on them because the moment the teacher decides that they're going to bring a rod along and think I can teach and fish. That's yeah. when, that's yeah. when, that's when problems occur. That's when the first couple of times I tried doing it with my kids, I thought I could just hand them a rod, give them a couple of basics and then they could, you know, kind of do things on their own. And then when they weren't able to, they got tangled. I got a little frustrated because I was trying to fish. So the one thing I would say I did, the only thing I did really well with my kids, the first couple of times was the first six months for each of my kid I did not pick up a rod I did not fish myself it was just working with them and it was just you know basics I mean that was it and I would say the one thing with teaching with kids and it's it's interesting because I I have uh, a brother that lives in Montana in the flash up that he works at has signs uh, or stickers in this in, in the shops that says uh, Montanans for a uh, Tenkara free, uh, <laughs> something like that. It, there's a lot of there's a lot of hate relationships between you know and, and bad blood between Tenkara and traditional fly fishing. Yeah. I use both. There, I, I use both, and I will say one thing. I think Tenkara fishing is one of the most brilliant tools for teaching people how to fish. Yeah, because yeah. one one it's intuitive. There is no line. There's no reel. When you look at beginners, the, the, a lot of the beginning classes I do. As soon as you start casting, they, they you can see their their line hand starting to get aggressive. That they they don't know what they want to do with their line hand. There's a reel there, and they just it overwhelms them. What's nice about the fixed line presentation with Tenkar is the line hand is off to the side, and all they need to worry about is just the rod hand. And what's great about the Tenkar rods as well is just the long limp tip, where essentially all you need is just a just a, a flip of the wrist to make the cast work. Uh, for short range casting and line control, everything, there's no stripping in line. There's no, you know, reeling in the line. Everything's done with the rod hand. So it is something that people, my kids, as soon as I, I switch from a traditional rod to the Tenkara system with my kids, you could just see within like, within like five minutes, they grasped, hmm. they, they got the concept down. Yeah. Uh, so, and the other thing too is, you know, when I was a kid, the, the, the biggest misconception about, teaching kids is like well they're they're small they don't have much power so we're going to give them a six to seven foot fly rod which i think is a horrible mistake because one you a kid is already short to begin with and 
they they don't have the leverage. So the, the worst thing you can do is actually give them a shorter lever to make the cast. Um, and the other thing is with, with traditional action fly rods, you've got a force. You need to actually accelerate. You need to accelerate with the rod tip to get the line to load the rod. What's nice about those rods with the Tenkara is the only power that is needed to actually generate the line is just a simple flip of the wrist. That's what those soft tips do uh, so well. So I would really recommend Tenkara for anyone, uh, whether they're going into trout fishing or taking them to a bluegill pond. But the Tenkara tool is just amazing for getting people into casting and also getting them into fish relatively fast. Yeah, yeah, those are those are those are good tips for sure. I we've talked a little bit about Tenkara on here and. Yeah, I've never uh, tried it myself, but I think I'm I'm going to give it a shot just because it sounds like yeah, it sounds super effective, especially in some of those areas, you know, whether you're kind of the smaller creeks that sort of uh, that sort of habitat. Um, so yeah, those are those are you know with the kids, you know, thinking about tips. Those are awesome tips. What what do you think as far as if you had you know again somebody who's out there trying to get in some fish, maybe fairly new. Do you have any general tips that just from overall just generally uh, fly fishing that you, you know you'd give a, a new person? Yeah, so I mean, a couple things. One, like we have a couple, we have a couple streams here in Central PA. There's one in particular called Spring Creek. It's it's a low it's a low gradient Spring Creek essentially that's maybe averages I don't know maybe 15 to 20 inches in depth. It, it's very very shallow. So and we have about 3,000 fish per mile, which is pretty good by Eastern standards. So. And the fish are used to the pre- are used to angling pressure because they get hit hard uh, day in day out, but they're they're very easy to please on on average. So normally, anytime you need to get some quick wins is what I'm saying. Uh, you don't take a beginner or or anyone that wants to learn a new technique onto a stream where they may or may not get feedback because. Doing the technique right is one thing, but doing the technique right and then getting feedback from the trout or from the fish basically tells the angler, you know, it basically seals a deal saying, okay, this, this is working. When it doesn't, when you're not making the cast, when you're not doing the right thing, you're not catching fish, but the moment you start doing the right thing, you catch. So it's those little, you know, bits of feedback that are important to basically kind of build that muscle memory uh, and also the, the muscle memory in the mind to give you the encouragement uh, to remember the things that catch the fish for you. So find some quick wins, uh, and then eventually you can challenge yourself, go to other waters, but find those quick wins. Uh, So that's, I would say, would be one of my number one tips. And then, you know, you can't hack. You know, we we live in a time right now where, you know, everyone wants to hack the system. (laughs) Yeah. It, it, and there are there are definitely tools that there are things that you can do that will basically you know cut the learning curve sometimes in half uh, maybe even more so but t- experience in the water is one thing and, and one of the best things you can do and and this is just a, a you know a shameless promotion for myself and, and the people in my community but hire a good guy uh, basically I mean yeah. it's amazing how people will spend seven eight nine hundred dollars on incredible equipment but they won't take a lesson if you could just take a lesson from even like a four-hour lesson and that learning curve the information that they're going to give you is going to cut that learning curve in half uh, as long as you have a good instructor so take a lesson buy the best equipment that you can afford but do everything you can to educate yourself uh, the best of your abilities yeah 
No, that's a that's a good uh, point. I we were just well, I was had a, a guest on a while back, and uh, he was talking about the same thing. The fact that uh, yeah, it's probably going to save you. It's actually going to save you money in the long term because you're not going to be buying more gear to fix the problems with your your casting or whatever. You're already going to know how to cast the right way. But uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think getting a guide is a smart move. Um, I had a question here from somebody. Oh, I'm trying to think. That uh, came out. I guess this was uh, Troy, um, and it was about water temps. And I, maybe I can just read it off really quick. This is just kind of a general, um, a general question here. But um, he's basically asking, you know, water, uh, you know, water types at different temperatures, and how will fish change water types based on temperature? So, you know, if you have a you know, you start out with a lower temperature, and then as you go through the day, the water um, increases in temperature. How do how do fish change where they lie? Is that something you could talk a little bit about? Uh, yeah, I'm, I can talk a little bit about the experience uh, on my home waters. And streams are just like human beings. I mean, we all have our uh, different attitudes and our demeanors about us. And, and the same thing is true with, with streams. We have like four really well-known limestone spring creeks in the area, and each of those four have a very drastically different uh, behavior uh, in the way the where fish hold and so forth. But you know, with, with water temperatures, um, you know, it depends on where you're living. If you are fishing like a spring creek or like a a spring creek or maybe like a tailwater where you have a more consistent, basically a consistent temperature, meaning it's not going to be fluctuating up and down drastically throughout the course of the day. Fish will be spread out uh, evenly. I mean, in the rifts, in, in the runs, in the pools, even the shallow feeding lies. Uh, where, you know, I'm not sure the waters that you fish, but we also have some freestones up north. And the freestone streams, when you look at the, the like the, Go onto the USGS water data site, and a lot of these stations will 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 do gauges of like CFS discharge. They'll look at temperature, uh, they'll look at uh, pH, and so forth. But if you look at the temperature on some of our limestone slash even like the tailwaters, temperatures won't fluctuate more than maybe sometimes four or five degrees over the course of maybe twenty-four hours. But if you go to a, a freestone stream. I mean, the, I've seen temperatures fluctuate, you know, 20 degrees, uh, and that's a huge shift. Uh, and the greater the shift, the greater the, the, the movement is going to occur within the stream itself. Uh, so it, it really is a, is a case-by-case study. I, it really just depends on where you're fishing and, and what the water temperature is doing. Uh, because, I mean, even in the wintertime, people say, well, you know, fish, you know, optimum temperature for trout are like 55 to 60 degrees. That's true. But when you are fishing like a, a spring Creek in central PA in January, and you have a temperature that's 33 to 34 degrees, it's just above freezing. I've, I've had some of the best midge hatches where I've seen fish, you know, actively feeding on the surface and, and chasing midge pupa, midge larva, incredibly, you know, just with, with ferocity, uh, at water temperatures, you know, in the, in the mid thirties. So again, yeah. it, it, it just, I, I hate putting a blanket statement on something saying, this is what's going to happen when you see this temperature. Right. It really depends on where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, uh, that makes sense. And maybe just, yeah, if you had to put a, a general statement on maybe, it, uh, well, I guess you're talking about some pretty cold temperatures, but when you get the really warm temperatures, depending on again, where you're talking about, it can, yeah, I guess kind of put down fish, right? They kind of get a little lackadaisical, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so, yeah, 
when you get water temps like that, usually they're going to be seeking cold, uh, colder water, which is going to have more dissolved oxygen. So often, that, depending on the stream, if you have like lots of water where there's like really deep water where uh, water is going to stratify a little bit. So slow, deep, you know, pools on the bottom of the pools, you're going to have some colder water temperatures on the bottom. Or if you don't have if you don't have those deep depths, you're going to see the fish often near the head of the run where you have you know, a ripple going into a, a pool, that ripple is, you know, creating bubbles. It's, it's oxygen, dissolved oxygen. And that's the only source. And that's where they're going to be stacked up at, uh, during, you know, during extreme, uh, weather conditions like that. But usually back home, like once temperatures hit 66, 67, I really, I, I lay off, uh, the fishing, uh, for trout. And then that's when I usually go uh, more into the carp and the and the bass fishing locally. Gotcha. So, what uh, when you're out there fishing and guiding, uh, what sort of techniques and flies and stuff like that do you typically fish? You do uh, more uh, streamers or nymphs or dries or a little bit of everything. Uh, a little bit of everything. I mean, people people come to me. I mean, it, it's you, you write books on nymph fishing. That's they all. That's all they think you know how to do. But yeah, I, I do. I do probably maybe 60% guiding mostly with nymph fishing, you know, a lot of, a lot of the Euro stuff, but also traditional indicator, uh, and tight line techniques. And then we have, I mean, in central PA from the months of like mid April on a average year to about the middle part of June, you've got some of our best hatches in the East coast and, and where yeah. I, and where I live, the limestone streams, you know, any, any significant hatch in the East coast, our streams are going to one of the four are going to harbor that hatch, and, and you might have four or five, sometimes six, seven, you know, major hatches going on at one time. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's, it, you know, it, with the right conditions. I mean, if you like to match the hatch and, and fish technical dry fly fishing to a, you know fish focusing on specific bugs, uh, central PA in that in, in that time frame is just a phenomenal time. So, you know, the dry flies are great. Uh, streamer time now, that's, you know, our, our fish are just starting to get on the beds right now. So uh, this is when I kind of leave the trout alone for a couple of weeks and I, I target more musky. We have a couple of musky fisheries locally. So I'm, that's, that's my love right now. I mean, I love trout fishing, but if I could do one thing right now is just chase musky. That's, that's really all I want to do uh, on my time off. So I do the musky thing, but then as soon as post-spawn, you know, about two to three weeks after the spawn occurs, I think that's when some of your best streamer fishing is is happening. It's just there's not as many bugs that are hatching. You might get some midge hatching, but unlike the rest of the time of the year where you have all these mayflies and other insects, caddis that are hatching and emerging, so you get a lot of these drift drifting periods of other insects. This part, you know, post-spawn till about the middle part of March, there's very little insect activity that's actually occurring. So I really find that it's the time where trout are very opportunistic towards larger bait fish. Now, you can catch fish, you can catch fish on streamers, you know, year-round, but it seems like, you know, that March, later March, April time period, when it seems like our fish will make a complete shift from forage to eating insects because there's just so much availability for the insects. Uh, but before then, I'm, I'm telling you, like that that coldest time of the year is probably my favorite time to throw streamers. Gotcha. And you mentioned uh, musky. What 
Is that something that uh, you don't really guide? It sounds like that's more of just a, a thing you do on, in your off time. Is, is that also um, kind of a, a destination type of, of fishery, would you say? It sounds like something that's a little bit under the radar. I've heard a few people talk about it, but it doesn't get as much, uh, you know, as much play as the saltwater stuff. What, what's your take on the whole muskie fishery? I mean, it's, you know, I, I love it because there there's there's not much in fly fishing that gets i mean that gets me really amped and excited but it's from a fishery standpoint you know you go down to the south you know like where blaine chocolate guides and a lot of those virginia they've got great musky fishing but you know the thing is is they've got some good musky fishing wisconsin's got some good musky fishing but there are some there's some damn good fishing in like northeast that no one really knew about or no one ever talked about. And you know, there I mean there's I have a musky fishery fifteen minutes away from my house. It's not great, but there's musky there. Uh and you know, <clears throat> I live on the Susquehanna River. The Susquehanna River, you know, is uh I forget how many hundreds, you know, hundred miles or so before it goes into the Chesapeake, but and most of that water, I mean, there there are muskies sporadically, you know, spaced throughout. So we have got, you know, not a lot of muskies, but if you are willing to do the homework, uh, fish a lot, find the few spots that they hold, uh, you can you can find some muskie uh, close by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it's definitely something that's that's on my radar. I'd, I'd love to uh, love to get after that eventually. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit. Um, a little bit ago about uh, Euronymphing. We, we weren't going to talk uh, much about nymphing, but I did have a question just thinking about the whole Euronymphing because I did, I have had a couple of guests and actually Devin Olson, who I had, I think it was one of my bigger episodes. <laughs> it was probably because it had the Euronymphing in the title, but um, I know when we were chatting, you, you said uh, something about uh, maybe Euronymphing is, is a little saturated. I, I was wondering if you could talk about what, you know, what that means or what do you think the current status is of, of your nymphing and what, and what you meant about saturated? No, yeah. What I mean by oversight is that it is definitely a hot topic and I get so many, I get more questions about your nymphing than anything else, but it's just, you know, there, it, there's just so much emphasis, emphasis on your nymphing. I, I think, you know, it's effective. Don't get me wrong. It, it catches fish, but the, the one thing that for me, at least from a fly fishing standpoint is, is being a, a complete angler. And, you know, and I listened to, to the podcast, I listened to the episode that Devin was there. And, you know, the thing is like you, you, this what separates like good comp anglers. Cause I know when I competed, I was a, I was a pretty good angler back in the day. Decent, not great, but I held my own, did well in some comps, but the difference between like the top, five top 10% versus the other 90% was this and in all these guys I know that are competing now not on the US team but are on their regional teams and so forth all they know how to do is chuck heavily weighted flies on a monofilament rig now it, it catches fish but it, if you find yourself on the Delaware River or the Henry's Fork uh, during peaks you know PMD or sulfur time, and you have the only way to catch a fish is casting 50 feet downstream to a fish at sipping PMDs, and you need to make a downstream presentation with a nice reach cast to the left. And there's most of the guys on the U.S. fly fishing team can do it. Guys like Lance, Devin, uh, you know, uh, a guy named Pat Weiss, and, and a handful of others. Those guys are 
are great all-around anglers. You can put them in any scenario, whether it's dry flies, nymphs, wets, and, and they can get it done. And that's why they are good, and that's why they do well in comps. But the rest of the field, and all they ever do is just talk about Euro nymphing, they're going to suffer. They, they, don't, know, they don't know how to cast. Uh, they don't know how to cast light the way it flies. They don't. It, it, you don't, and I'm not talking about like being an entomologist where you need to know the Latin of everything, but there are times when you are fishing bug specific rivers, again, like on the Henry's Fork, the Delaware, the South Holston, where those fish become very bug centric. I mean, they, a sulfur may come off or an ice snake, a specific insect that has a unique physical characteristic and also a behavior in the water that trout are, are not overly intelligent, but they key in on specific ways that that insect is moving in the water. And if you're not able to understand what those fish are doing and what the bugs are doing and how they're reacting to it, you're not able to do that. And what I'm saying by was sat, oversaturated is all they talk about is just casting heavily weighted flies. Uh, with, and I, that's great. It catches fish. But to be a good all-around angler, I think you need to kind of just step outside your comfort zone because in all honesty – when I teach beginners, I, I, I do, I, you know, my my philosophy with teaching is I get it most of the time, I, I teach them Euro nymphing because it's very intuitive. Usually it's a fixed line presentation where you're just casting and leading your flies. It's not really casting as much as just lobbing. So it's pretty straightforward. And then, and then when they are excited and they want to progress, then we talk about casting, then we talk about mending and so forth. So all I'm saying is that you just, you just need to kind of expand and not just oversaturate with just the euro just but learn all aspects of the game because if you're going to be fishing year round uh on waters near and far you need to know more than just the euro game let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors the portland fly shop located in the pearl district in downtown portland with over 50 years of combined fly fishing experience in the pacific northwest the Portland Fly Shop has all the gear and knowledge you need to find success, whether on the river or behind the vice. One of Hairline's top 100 dealers in the nation, they have a great fly tying selection and carry all of the top brands, including Sage, Loomis, Hatch, Airflow, and many more. They are your winner steelhead at course with over 13 years of guiding experience and 20 years of professional fly tying knowledge. They will get you dialed in on the vice or on the rotter. And I remember actually when I first met uh, Jason, it was a number of years ago in another fly shop, and I knew right away that he totally knew his stuff and he was a super cool guy. So it was pretty cool and surprising when I walked into the Portland shop for the first time and saw the same friendly face there that I remembered from a few years back. So a uh, really cool local story here. Um, they offer a wide range of guided trips, um, adventures up to the Olympic Peninsula in Upper Columbia if you want to kind of get out there without having to go too far. And uh, you can give them a call at uh, 503-265-8060 or visit them online at theportlandflyshop.com. Portland, born and bred, on-site parking, just two turns off of 405. We are also brought to you by The Gray Drake, who produces high-quality vintage fly wallets and boxes. Their motto, progress through tradition, respect through stewardship. The fly wallets are handmade in the USA with sustainable cork, uh, and these boxes are naturally self-healing, which... 
essentially means that it holds, it can hold a little tiny midge or some big daddy stoneflies and it'll last and, and hold the flies for years to come. The Ho River Wallet is kind of the Rolls Royce of fly storage, double line leather and calf skin protects your flies. High quality wool, um, includes, um, a way to pull out moisture out of the fly. And you'll definitely be proud to pass this one on to the next generation. And I personally have, you know, I've always loved the fly wallets. I remember studying the old wallets that were passed down from my grandfather and, and my dad. And there's nothing that really comes close to feeling those old, those old, uh, you know, those wallets and, and tell Roy, you know, the, the wallet, the great Drake has here is kind of sharing that same tradition. So it's pretty cool. A classic feel and reminds me of, kind of the old day. So right now the Great Drake is donating a portion of proceeds from all sales through the end of the year to Wild Steel Hunters United to help defend remaining runs of Wild Steelhead in the Pacific Northwest in Idaho. Head over to thegreydrake.com to grab your fly box wallet today. That's T-H-E-G-R-E-Y Drake.com. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned the um tip uh you know the or the being bug centric when when the fish are in that kind of that zone where they're you know what what would you is there a tip for that if somebody finds themselves out there and they're when you know bug centric that means they're focused on a single uh, species of of uh bug that's coming off so you know i'm not an entomologist but you know and, and i don't do many plugs for other people's work uh even though i read countless books but a friend of mine named paul weimer wrote a book and he would be a great, you know, if you're ever looking for like an etymology, yeah, I am. <laughs> he, he he would be great. But he wrote a book. It, it turned out it was a it was a like an e log, not an e log book, but like a uh, an online book that eventually became a hardback. But it's called the Bug Book. But if if you have a second grade reading level ability, and that's what he did, he basically took something that is incredibly complex and complicated and basically talked about all the insects. The, the He broke them down into species. And then within the species, talked about the insects that are the most important to the trout. And basically in like four or five sentences with each one, talked about how they hatch, any key fe- uh, features, whether like you're talking about like a soft or like a split back where – you know, when you have this yellow mayfly that's trying to break out of its nipple shuck, you'll have this yellow split back, as they name it. And, and that color variation is something that the trout may key in on. Uh, but long story short, he talks about the insects in a very simple manner and how they behave and what the angler needs to do to mimic that behavior. Uh, so what I'm saying is buy the book. Uh, it's $15. You can't go wrong. And find out where you're fishing and what hatches are occurring during that time period. And just basically not only match the hatch, but more importantly, match the behavior of the fish. And that book will help you out. Yeah. No, I, I love that. That's a, I'm always looking for good resources and I'll, I'll put a, a link to the, to that book in the show notes. This is, this will be at uh, wetflyswing.com slash 54. I'll have all the, all the links that uh, we talk about here. Um, and I just want to touch on a little bit more on the competitive angling because I, you, you have some experience there. I guess you were on the, the U.S. Uh, US team? Yeah, I was on the – I did the adult team, I think, for six years. And then I coached, I coached the adult team for two years, and I also coached the, the United States youth team for two and a half years. So, yeah, I mean, so, I, mean I, I've had, I had a good run, but it was, it was just time to, time to get out. I mean, 
you know, I look at guys like Lance and Devin, and you know, those guys make a lot of, a lot of sacrifices. Uh, you know, they were very focused on competitive fly fishing, and that's why they've done really well. I I had a short run, I did really well, but to in order to stay at the level that Lance and Devin fish at, you've got to put so much time and energy into that. And with a, a business I had uh, with my writing, with a gr- with a growing family, I just it was just time for me to to leave. I had a great great run, had learned a lot, but it was just time to get out of the game. What What would you tell? Um, you know, I I hear a little bit uh, of this out there, and I'm not sure you know where it comes from, but I guess it's the the competition f- fishing. Like people are kind of. You know, there's some people out there that are kind of against competition fishing, like they think it's, you know, putting a kind of a negative slant on the whole fly fishing thing. What would you say to somebody that, that had that sort of take and, you know, especially since you've been involved in it, what, what would be your, you know, what sort of benefits do you see of the whole comp, the USA team and all that that's going on? So what I would say would be this, um, not to switch subjects, but let's go to bass fishing, for example. Now, the, I don't want to draw parallels between, you know, the Bass Masters and the U.S. fly fishing team, but you want to look at all the major advances, all the gear, everything that, I mean, if you want to look at a, a real professional, someone in, in a field that does the R&D, the research, and is always cutting edge, coming up with new gizmos, gadgets, fishing equipment, you look at the bass circuit. What feeds all that R&D is the competition. Competition breeds ingenuity. Uh, It breeds progression. You need that competition because you're always looking for the next edge. You switch now back to fly fishing. You look at whether you love them or not, like the squirmy wormies, the mops, okay? I mean, those are patterns, but those are patterns that were used in competition fishing that were so effective that the general public took over. You look at a lot of the European nymphing rods. When even like 10 years ago, when I wrote my first book, we were using traditional action fly rods. But now, because of competition fishing, the techniques and the equipment that you use and all the equipment that you see now available has been refined over the last five, six years to almost perfection based on these guys that are going out competing and looking for the next edge, you know, like with, with, with leaders. I mean, the big thing with European nymphing now is going thin with your, as thick as possible with your leader. It it makes sense because it goes back to your bait fishing days. You you look at the guys that are fishing red worms on like six pound test. Long story short, the thinner the material or the thinner or the less weight you have within the guides and outside the guides, the more direct contact would you have with your, your flies. So if you have a fly line or even a heavily weighted leader or a traditional tapered leader in the guides and outside the rod tip, there's a mass. And with that mass, there's a, there's a small degree of sag. And that sag is going to create some sort of disconnect between you and your flies. The big thing now is essentially these guys are just doing level leaders when they're nymphing. I mean, they're just basically all straight six pound test. And when you do that, it just gives you a straighter line connection, and it gives you so much more increase in sensitivity. But what brought what breeds that was the competition, was the anglers looking for the next edge. You look at jig hooks, for example. Uh, just it's about a 
It's about efficiency, not getting hung up nearly as much, not losing your flies. The Czechs were, were some of the first to actually introduce uh, jig hooks in the competition circuit. So, and was basically, that, and was that because they was that because they uh, did, didn't? That wasn't because they didn't have any other hooks. They were just using kind of gear type hooks. It was because they actually sought those out. Because I guess it was the Polish team that had more. They were coming out with the ones that didn't have rods and stuff at the beginning, right? Yeah, definitely the checks. But even like, you know, like I would say probably like 10 years ago, jigs were not kind of a, a known commodity. But uh, the, the checks, from what I, I gather, were actually bending their own hooks. But but taking what the, taking what they know from the, the terminal or taking it from the, the other side, you know, like the bass fishing and so forth. But basically understand that the, hicks, the, the, the hooks are going to invert. They claim that maybe you get a better hooking percentage. But also, anytime you want to add movement or put movement into that fly, I mean, it, it, you, you can basically turn your nymph into a clouser minnow by just simply putting a slide tungsten bead onto a, a 90 degree bend hook. And then you could tip the, you know, just basically just tap the rod tip. And all of a sudden, you, you add additional movement into your fly. So, what I'm saying is, competition just breeds the ingenuity. And, and here's the other thing, too whether you like competition fishing or not, I I don't you know I don't like gymnastics really I don't like curling so to speak I don't like you know you know all these Olympic events but I watch the Olympics because I am watching the best in in their respective fields in the world and even though I don't really follow any of these sports specifically there's something to be said about watching the best in their field do what they do uh, in the open in whether you agree with competitive fly fishing or not, whenever you had people, vendors, you know, or just the general public watching these guys fish and sometimes ladies fish along the water, it was an incredible learning curve. Uh, so many of the people that when I was on there were opposed to competitive fly fishing, they would come by just to watch. And I would say 99% of them would come back and say, you, you, you would, you know, thank you so much. I have no, you, you have no idea how much I learned by just watching this guy fish for a few moments. Uh, so don't knock it until you try it. Or in this case, just, you know, whether you like competition fishing or not, it's going to progress our sport. You know, it's, it's going to create better equipment, better tools. And then also it's just the power of observation, you know, just by watching the best in their field, you are going to have to really work hard not to improve your skills. Uh, you, you almost have to fly. Yeah. So that's what my, you know, elevator spiel would be sure. for the fly fishing. Sure. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, and what do you think? Going back to the, the to the muskie, do you have a uh, a couple of muskie fly patterns you, you like to use if somebody was going to go out there and try to find some? Oh, uh, I mean, there's a couple. I mean, I love tying flies, but to be honest with you. I bought probably last year about $300 worth of saddles and so forth. Uh, tying nymphs and tying wet flies and so forth, it's it's pretty easy to tie flies that are designed to drift and even sometimes swim or, or swing. But with musky flies, these flies are so large and bulky, uh, tapers have got to be precise. So I, I, I it just takes 50 to you know almost an hour long tie these flies so I, I i buy my flies uh from a couple of local guys. but you know i would definitely look at the game changers by like blaine chocolate like he's his t-bone is a great pattern and then another pattern is a guy named joe goodspeed joe is a, is a friend of mine he is the 
rod designer or one of the rod designers for Thomas and Thomas. Uh, he, he's got a handle on Instagram called Teeth and Trout, but he is eccentric. He is a lunatic, but probably one of the more, one of the more brilliant minds in fly fishing. This guy, uh, just to kind of let you know, he's got a pattern called the mop head. Uh, and I can't even explain the, the basically, but he's got some things that he'll, if you go onto his Instagram account, you're going to see these incredibly well thought out patterns called the mop head, which is basically like just goop over top of uh senior laser dub, but he basically molds these heads, uh, like, like plastics for, for musky. But Joe, Joe's a brilliant thinker because what he does, he tries to get inside the mind of the fish, which is sometimes a scary proposition, but Muskie are an apex predator. They are the top of the food chain. What what is so fascinating about the muskie is this. They they will follow their prey 30 40 feet. I mean, I've had fish follow the fly. I mean, it's amazing. And what's what 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 is so amazing with these fish is that they are not spooked and, and by the boat. Rarely are they spooked by the boat. And that's why they talk about the figure eight, but what what is so fascinating about the muskie is that you can work your fly. You, you think you have a pretty good view of your fly in the surrounding areas. But all of a sudden, you bring your fly in, and then no matter what, even you do or do not see a fish behind you, always figure, finish the, the presentation out with a figure eight. And you can make 100 casts, and then all of a sudden on this one cast, you, you're in clear wire. You don't see anything. You're starting to sweep your flies into that figure eight pattern right in front of the boat. And before you know it, like this head just appears. It, it's like a ghost. It just appears. And it's just, it's, it's right on your fly. Like, you know, it's behind your fly. Nine out of 10 times, they don't even take it. Uh, nine out of 10 times if you're actually lucky, but they, they will follow that. They, they just, they know what to look for. Um, and Joe is one of these guys where he tries to deceive them. So people talk about putting flies, like eyes on their flies. Joe is like, he's under the mentality. Like I don't want flies because Two flies on my fly is indicating a fish that has good vision and is a good is, is a prey that can see its predators. So what he's trying to do is I don't want eyes on my fly. I'm trying to create a scenario where the muskie is coming up and, and seeing that oh it's a blind fish exactly. it can't see. Uh, it, that's that's the that's the world that this they my want. friend and go. That's but, cool though. Like the wounded, uh, it's just like any animal out there. You know they're you know, the, the predator is going to take down the weak deer, right. Or the weak, whatever animal that they're, they're not going to go for the strongest one. <laughs> exactly. And, and that goes into play. I mean, I've had a couple of friends that were in special ops and, and they would do, uh, whether it was tours or what their duty, but wherever they were, like if they were in like jungles and whatnot, you know, one of the things that you would do when you're in jungles and when there's lions and cats, you know, large cats around, they would tell you is that you put your sunglasses you know, but on your, on the back of your hat, basically. And, and what that would look like if a cat was, cause a lot of times these cats will come up from behind and attack you, but putting by switching the sunglasses it is basically representing that there's a set of eyes in the back of your head looking out whether it works or not, but that's, that's their mentality. But that's the same thing with that. Joe is trying to tell his flies not to do. So yeah, it, it's just interesting, but Joe is just a brilliant guy, and if you really want to, I mean, I, I'm a hack. I've only been doing this for about three years, but that's all I do. I, I devour as much information. I spend as much time on musky fishing as I, as possible. But I would say, you know, definitely Blaine Chocolate, who has a, a, a book coming out called Game Changer. 
uh, here pretty soon. Uh, but it talks about designing flies specifically that swim and, uh, and a lot of it's on musky fisher, but then also Joe Goodspeed, uh, with Instagram. Uh, Joe is a guy that I think probably catches more big musky than any other guy I know. He's just a, a fishy guy and has got a pretty good approach to his game. Hmm. Yeah. It sounds like you're pretty passionate about musky. And it also sounds like it is kind of a, I don't know. I mean, it sounds to me like it's a good destination fishery that, uh, you know, that people would want to go to and check out, especially the way you're talking about it. What do you think, you know, you've written so much about nymphs and nymphing and, and all that stuff. What, what makes you, you know, what gets you tired about talking about nymphing? Is that, and you're so passionate about this other thing, is it just a little switch or what, what is it now with, with the nymph? Is that something, obviously you still do it a lot, but just, you know, talking about it, getting into it, is it just a natural progression? Well, maybe it's a natural progression, but it's it's just something different. I mean, honestly, I mean, you can. I have, I've got a great job, and I mean, I love fishing. But if if and I'm on the water probably for trout, probably close to 250 to 280 days a year for trout, and that is fishing for myself or guiding. So it's nice to kind of get away from you know some. And to be honest with you, when Anytime you have an advancement, whether it's a thought or some sort of progression in your game, it's the only time that's ever happened to me is actually when I stepped away from it and actually just given myself a break from it. So I love nymph and, you know, and I do it a lot. And I, I, and I, one of the things I love about like European nymphing, it's, it's a very thought provoking. It's very, uh, engaging technique where instead of watching the bobber, which the bobber is controlling everything for you. You are in the driver's seat. You you don't have the bobber controlling your drift. You have to look at the, the speed and the depth of the water, and you have to determine how fast to lead your flies, how slow to move your rod tip, and so forth. So I love that about the nymph fishing, but, you know, it's – I like hunting too. And, and like going down to the flats, my wife and I used to would go down to the Bahamas, try to like once or twice every every two years. We haven't done this in a long time, but – there's something about stalking, like hunting fish. Like, like when you're when you are fishing for trout with nymphs, you're you're fishing, you know. But when you're when you're fishing for musky or when you're doing any sort of sight fishing, it, you're hunting. It's that uh, that predatory man. And to me, that is so much more exciting. Knowing when I'm actually hunting something, and, and especially something like a, a musky. Where here's the thing, you know, when you do something right with nymph fishing and you're in a good trout, in a good trout stream and in the right condition, you can catch lots of fish. The first eight times I went out with a guide or a friend for musky fishing, I got my ass beat. I had some fish follow. I, 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 I messed up a couple of hook sets because I got, but you can go, the return on investment is not there. But what's nice about it is the, the more suffering you pay, you put into it, the more work you go into it, the, the benefit and the reward is that much greater. And that's what musky fishing is to me. It's just, I mean, I, I bought a boat and I'm a, one of the most frugal guys, but I bought a boat specifically for musky fishing uh, just because of how passionate, but nothing will make me more excited than going out fishing for three, four days and not seeing a fish. And then on that fourth or fifth day, having a fish come in and just follow your fly on the circuit, on, on the figure eight, eating the fly at the boat. And, and sticking the fish and it, it, it's just, it's taken so much time and effort, you know, maybe a couple of days to, to get that to all the stars to align up. So yeah. I, I just love it because it's just, it's so much work, but it, it's such a great reward at the end of the day. Yeah, that's cool. Do you have a, 
like a musky if you had one musky tip to give somebody you know that's a good good question one musky tip <laughs> or i don't know if it's I, i'm just coming from a, from a you know that a new a newbie sort of thing so i'm just thinking like you know there's lots of trout fishing tips but is is musky you know that you talk about the predator prey thing is is it that much different than say you know, if you look at casting, that was going to be uh, another question. You know, like, is there are there any specific casts that you do for musky that um, you know any unique types of uh, you know techniques or retrieves that you do when you're fishing for them? Yeah, well, well, basically with, with musky fishing, you're trying to use your larger muscles. So most of the time, because you're casting like an eleven or twelve weight, and you're casting these flies that are like small little squirrels here. You're trying to use the larger muscles, so most often you're trying to cast off your backhand. So that's just going to allow you to suffer longer throughout the course of the day rather than trying to cast on, on your front side. But from a fishing standpoint, I, it's probably one of the best tips I got from a friend of mine, another guy named Chris Willen, uh, just a phenomenal musky guide, great angler, knows his stuff. But with, with, with musky fishing, again, sometimes – Sometimes it happens. I mean, you can have days where you're having four or five fish follow to the boat, which is really good. And then there might be a there might be a time period where you're fishing three, four days, and you might not see a damn thing. The thing that kind of keeps you in the game is, believe it or not, throwing large, flashy flies. Uh, I mean, and that's it. Because nothing is more discouraging when you're fl- throwing your flies out into the depth and you're throwing these dull color flies that kind of blend in the water and you can't see. And all you're doing is just looking into this water, not seeing anything, and you're just stripping, and you're and you're working your ass off, and you're not getting anything. But as long as you put that brightly colored chartreuse fly or that white fly, but something that you can see really well, that just it, as long as you can see that fly, that keeps you in the game. It just gives you the motivation, uh, you know. So I would say brightly colored flies, to be yeah. honest with. You. And how, uh, how how long might you go between uh, hookups or some sort of uh, positive feedback fishing for muskie? It, it all depends on fronts, water systems, uh, conditions, and so forth. I mean, when, when it, like fall right now, fall is a prime time. So it's just when they're starting to put that feed bag back really on before like the heart of our winter season kicks in. You should be moving like normally. I'm moving to fish like once or twice every day consistently. If I if I'm doing things right, I I should be moving sometimes three to four fish on, on a good condition and maybe sticking one or two of those fish. Okay. Uh, but then I mean there are times where all of a sudden we have high water now. We've got high water where I've been like three days now in a row without moving a fish. Uh, it's just we've had just and it's just difficult with flies. And the equipment that we use, because it's you, you want to talk about the most inefficient way to actually target fish. You, you put a fly line on it. That's if you yeah. want to catch fish and so forth. You know the deal. But yeah. so it depends on the conditions. But normally, three four days is is the longest I've been without seeing okay. something. But normally, if you you got to find the water, and that's why I bought a jet boat because fish are holding in specific spots, and it's not like where you're on a, a trout water where fish are evenly spread out for the most part like you might have eight ten miles of river and there might only be like one or two holes and in those two holes there might only be like a couple corners or some slow deep spots within those pools and and that's where the majority of your fish are going to be holding for the most part Mm -hmm. so you've got to hit the spots uh, and that's just knowing the water what what kind of so you jet boat what kind of boat like what what size or what type i'm trying to picture it in my mind what it looks like Oh, it's a pretty basic. All of this is it's just a it's a thirty horsepower jet with uh, a nice flat boat uh, oh, aluminum. Flat. Boat. That's it. 
Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Yep. All right. Well, um, yeah, we're getting pretty closer. I had a, a little rapid fire round. I was hoping to, to bust out. But before I got there, I just had one uh, question just about, you know, again, back on your past. Is, is there, you know, something, some sort of a, a turning point that, you know, you, you talked about some of the stuff you did earlier in your career um, where you're doing some stuff that wasn't fly fishing specific. Is there something that sticks out that caused you to turn and go all in now you're a full time guide and, and all that to, to get to where you are? Man, I wouldn't say. Or, or I guess the other way to look at it would be, have you ever thought, did, you know, did you ever think about kind of, uh, you know, not staying in it or, or quitting or is it something that you see yourself for your, you know, kind of going until the end? Basically, I was going to, <laughs> I probably would have died, uh, you know, died trying uh, to get into this. This was just something that when I was, when I was 14 years old, I bought my first fly fish book and that was Joe Humphrey's trout tactics. And even today it's one of the most relevant books. If you want to learn about fishing, trout fishing in general, that is a great book. But when I found out that there was this guy in central PA that was about an hour and a half away South of me at that time before I moved that taught at Penn state angling and basically made a career teaching how to fly fish. When I read that book, I mean, that was it. Like that's what I'm going to do. I mean, whether it's teaching it, but, so from that point on, it was it was my mission. Now, like my my wife will tell you, like her family when you know we've been now married for now seventeen years coming up, but we've been together for twenty one, twenty two years. But when they found out that you know their daughter or you know you know their niece or whatever was uh, in love with this fishing, um, uh, they're like, there's no way this guy is going to make a living for himself. But basically, it was just you know. I, I knew exactly what, what I wanted to do. But the other thing, too, is, you know, you just don't go out there bullheaded and, and just full charge. You look at people that were successful. And, and that's one of the things that dropped me, drew me to, to Joe. You look, you look at a guy like Joe and, and even other guides uh, that were, you know, full-time guides, like guys like Pat Dorsey, who's been, you know, guiding in Colorado. I mean, this, you know, guiding is kind of a new thing within, you know, I'd probably say the last 10 years where people were actually making, like, you know, actually making careers, but there were guys like Frank and, and there were guys like Pat Dorsey, you know, 30 years, 30, 40 years ago that were actually making it. So I, I knew of a handful of those guys that actually did really well. And I just, I reached out to them and, and just, and, and basically I stalked them just trying to figure out and any opportunity, even if it meant like a five hour drive to sit down with, with these guys for just 30 minutes to talk with them. That's all I wanted to do, and I just picked their brains, and and eventually, eventually came up with a plan that, at least to this day, is fairly successful. Yeah, no, that's a that's an awesome tip for anybody that's want to go. Yeah, you get out and well, again, mentors is something I ask a lot of my guests about, and and you took it, you know, that that, that next step, which everybody should, is to to get out there and make the effort to connect with these people. And, and Joe, I'm looking forward to hearing more about Cause I, I don't have the whole story on Joe. I know a little bit, um, you know, is he, I, I guess he was a guide for a good chunk of time, but can you talk just briefly about his, his kind of life story and how, I mean, it just seems amazing how you connected with one of the biggest names that, that's out there, how, how that all came to be. Yeah. I mean, Joe's been doing some guiding and instruction, but I mean, his, his thing was, uh, basically, Joe, in his young, in, in his youth, was a troublemaker or got into a lot of trouble. And basically, there was a book uh, called Just Fishing. 
Uh, you know, it, it was a classic book called Just Just Fishing. Uh, and his parents, uh, um, just as a as a as an act of desperation, gave Joe this book, just hoping. And then Joe, all of a sudden, like just took to, to fishing. As soon as he wrote this, read this book, Just Fishing. I mean, that's all he wanted to do. And it kind of just changed his approach to everything. He All of a sudden, he became a great student. He became a, a good athlete. Uh, that one book changed the course of his life. Long story short, he went to Penn State. He did boxing. I think he wrestled for Penn State as well. Uh, and then that's when he got to meet uh, a guy named George Harvey. George Harvey taught the first angling, first credited fly fishing course in the United States at Penn State. He started back in the 1930s. But Joe started taking that course uh, when he was at Penn State, and basically it was a mentorship. Just like Joe took me under his wing, George took Joe under his wing, uh, developed a good relationship. But long story short, you know, back in whatever it was the '60s or '70s, George was going to retire, and he wanted to make sure that the right person was going to be his predecessor. So he got everything lined up for Joe to take over. Uh, and then Joe became the next angling professor. And from there, yeah, and, and from there, you know, he, he wrote two books. Uh, he was, he, they, it was the first televised fly fishing series. It was ESPN. Uh, he was the first one to do a, a series on fly fish on ESPN. And basically that's kind of how he kind of, he was a great angler from the beginning, but it wasn't until like the seventies when he started writing, uh, and really taking over the angling program where he actually started developing some national notoriety, but he's just, uh, you know, he is, it's tough love with Joe. I mean, Joe, you, you gotta love him or hate him. And the thing I like about Joe is he doesn't hold any punches. Uh, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons why I did so well in competitive fly fishing is because in competitive fly fishing, you've got to fish under pressure, uh, under time constraints. And there was no greater amount of pressure anyone could be under than when fishing with Joe Humphreys. Because hmm. uh, Joe was a taskmaster. Because uh, one of my favorite stories about Joe from his wrestling days when he was a coach at a local high school before he took the angling program was he would get his wrestlers all wound up. And if he felt like his wrestler was not just stoked or excited to get on that match, I mean, he would literally start smacking you in the face to get you <laughs> to get you pissed off, to get you rolling. Yeah. And the same thing with fly fishing. Like when, when I wasn't doing something correctly, I mean, he would smack me over the back of the head or take the rod tip and, and just smack me. Wow. And he would say, God damn it, that's not how you do it. But 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 when 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 Joe if Joe didn't care about you, he wouldn't have said anything. He would just, you know, turn his head and just, but that's Joe. Hmm. I, I, I quickly realized that was Joe's way of saying, I care. Uh, and as soon as I realized that I took that as a compliment because he was yep. trying to uh, allow me to become a better angler. So, uh, it was, it's been a, a great relationship with Joe. Uh, I owe Joe an immense amount. And, you know, we spent a lot of time on the water together, but the one thing I will say about Joe is he, he gave you encouragement and you know, you can spend time with anybody, but the, I think the best gift anyone that you look up to can give you is not only their time, but giving you their encouragement saying that you can do this, you can do that. And you know, even when I had times of doubt about whether I wanted to go into the fly fishing career and so forth, Joe was always very supportive saying, you know, here are some things to think about, but you can do this. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't say you're going to rock it, but you know, he had the faith and you gave me the encouragement. And when you get that from the right person, uh, it's amazing how that can, uh, fuel you, uh, during the, 
you know, the low times in your life. Yeah. No, thanks for sharing that. That's a, that's a really cool story. And, um, yeah, this angling professor, it sounds like maybe, maybe you're going to be in line for, to take over when Joe steps down, huh? Is that, is that the next step? Uh, Joe stepped down a, a couple years oh, ago. Oh, he's down. Uh, okay. Yeah, but, but he's still, he's still very active. He does some teaching, but there's been a couple guys. So, uh, the job might come available at some point and I would definitely be interested, but you know, I, as of right now, uh, I, I really love what I do. I do, you know, I, I guide about 120 days a year. I don't do any more than that. Uh, I have a great, my I have great clients. My year's already filled for 2019. Uh, I do a lot of clinics. I get to travel a lot. And that's the one thing I love about the clinics is because with the guiding, and I don't want to hold you up here, but the thing, about, the thing about guiding is this, is that when you guide on the same water for 200 to 220 days a year, which I could easily do here in this part, I find that people who just stay in, at the same spot doing the same, they, they, they develop a group. Uh, and I don't want to get stuck in the group. The one thing that has kept me open-minded to outside ideas is I'll do my guiding, but when I travel and do speaking engagements, I will almost always hire local guides or fish with local guides uh, in that area. And when I do that, I'm always introduced to new ideas and concepts. And it's that constant flow of new information that kind of keeps things fresh for me and really reduces the chance of me going further and further into, uh, you know, a ditch uh, yeah. or, you know, my own ditch. That's a, that's a great point. Nice. Well, we, uh, yeah, we're getting closer. Do you have a little bit of time for a quick little rapid fire round? Sure. All right. I just have a few questions I always like to, before we get out of here. And the, the first one, um, I actually, you've talked about a ton of resources and books and things like that. Is there any, anything else like a book magazine video, anything that, uh, you know, think would be helpful for somebody, you know, just generally for, well, I guess we've talked a little bit about musky fishing, but just generally for fly fishing. Yeah. I mean, I would say probably one of the best learning tools and it is again, it's another shameless promotion, but, uh, I, I work with a little bit with the Orvis company and I would say the Orvis Learning Center uh, is just, it's an absolute wealth of knowledge. Uh, anything from knot tying to basic casting. Uh, they have a guy named Peter Kutzer on there uh, that is just an amazing fly casting instructor to, to showing you all kinds of rigs uh, based on the conditions. And not just for trout, but for all species. So I would highly recommend the Orvis Learning Center as a as a great resource for not just a beginner but even adva- I, I find myself going on there a couple times a week just to uh, remember some of the things I've, I've forgotten or even some new things uh, I haven't learned yet so yeah. great resource yeah yeah I agree no it's good um, what do you have a top piece of like a go-to piece of gear that you use maybe a non-fly fishing something maybe while you're traveling or out there uh, doing your stuff uh well, you know, from a fishing standpoint, that's not fly fishing gear. I would probably say the, the rubber twist ties, if you're familiar with it, you know, uh, they're just basically like if you look at like the bread, you know, bread oh, yeah. loaves, how you have little. So those little rubber twist ties, I that was an idea I got from the Tenkara guys from Daniel. Uh, but anytime you are fishing droppers on like your flies, for example, uh, and your your flies are, are just hanging, I even just a two minute walk from one spot to the other, it's guaranteed that by the time you reach your next spot, that dropper is going to be tangled or wrapped around your rod several times. Yeah. So those little twist ties are great for that. But then two, anytime, uh, I just use twist ties. I, I use a raft. I use boats. So I use them in different lengths and diameters, but 
I just use that to basically uh, jerry-rig a lot of my stuff and keep things hanging off my vest or keep things uh, close together where they need to be. So right. that would probably be one of my top tools. Nice, nice. And uh, and we mentioned kind of musky flies. Do you have a top? You know, if you had to say one trout fly, you know that you you know you put on with either your clients or kind of your go-to fly. Do you, can you pull out one or two? Yeah, this year again, it's all you. I mean, every year you develop new confidence patterns, uh, but I would probably say Higa's SOS, his nymph. Uh, a friend of mine, Spencer Higa, he's a he's a, he's a nice little Mormon boy, so he doesn't he doesn't swear. So instead of saying "save our asses," this <laughs> fly is called "save our skins." SOS. So it's Higa's SOS nymph, uh, but it's just it's basically like a zebra midge with a black tail with a red flashback uh, wing and some black crystal flash for the legs but from you know probably the fly that i've had on my nymphing rig for most of my clients from you know april all the way till like last week that sos pattern has probably accumulated for more fish than any other pattern in my box so the sos i would recommend okay okay cool and and we again started off talking a little bit about the educational piece and philosophy do you have can you sum up your Again, just uh, your teaching philosophy, or you know, maybe a tip for somebody who's kind of wanting to to get into this that, that sums up how you are such a good teacher. And I mean, obviously, you've learned some from some great teachers. Okay. So what I what I would say is this: substance versus style. So learn the fundamentals of the casting, you know, line control. But there are some very similar you know pieces that when you're talking about casting there are principles that don't change so learn those principles okay but whatever you do do not let yourself or if you have a guide or a instructor do not let them unless absolutely necessary have them dictate their style to you meaning you know the thing i am try to be cognizant of is this i am six foot three about a buck 85 i have i have a long wingspan i there's no way in hell i expect a client that is five foot five uh shorter with to cast the same way i do so what i try to do is teach the fundamentals the basics but you need to develop your own style uh and once you've established your style your experience where you fish, that is all going to determine how you create your own style. Gotcha. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, well, that is, uh, I just want to check in one last thing. Um, in the next 6 to 12 months, uh, do you have anything we can expect coming out from you new, anything to keep a lookout for? Well, uh, more, most recently I have a new book called Nymph Fishing. Uh, it's uh, the, the first book on nymph, uh, dynamic nymphing was a lot of focused on the European. This new book is talking about kind of blending the European nymphing techniques along with, you know, just traditional techniques where you even you need to use split shot. I'm, I'm not a comp angler anymore. I try to use the Euro stuff as much as possible, but there are times where you need to use split shot. And, and basically I, I just talk about, situations where you need to kind of break the european rules because they have to follow strict rules we're not competitors we don't need to follow those rules sometimes there there's a time and place where you can break those rules and have an advantage uh the other thing is uh i will be having a uh a series of nymphing uh euro i think 
Euro 101 uh, with the Orvis Learning Center. So basically, it's just a bunch of short clips, maybe six to eight short clips. But just if you're if you're looking about getting into it, it's going to be free. But just some short clips about you know the, the basics, the essentials on what you need to get started. Nothing complicated, just the nuts and bolts of you know A to B uh, on the basics of you know European nymphing. So that should be out here relatively soon. And then also, if you don't mind. Um, my blog, it's just, uh, you go on my website, Living on the Fly. You can subscribe to my, but the, the blog is just basically a, a series of just random, you know, just comments, uh, just tips. Uh, I, I do one or two tips a week, but just things that sometimes I forget or a tip I, I pick up when I'm traveling, but uh, just something that, uh, you know, keeps you uh, keeps you fresh, keeps yeah. your mind fresh. What's your... What's your just as a last little take on what, what what's your goal with the blog? You know, you're you're it takes time to put out that stuff. I mean, when you look at the long term of it, do you have a do you have a plan for that thing, or are you just kind of do it to just to write and get some some information out there? I do. Uh, you know, I, I'm always going to be writing books, as far as I know. I'm going to be even though there's fewer and pe- fewer people writing, but uh, reading books. But you know, it keeps me fresh. But then too, it's you know. I like to help people. I really do. And these are just, there's no stories. It's just a couple sentences or sometimes a couple paragraphs just talking about a specific thing that I feel that can help someone. So, uh, I have no, I've already had some opportunities to have sponsorship. Uh, there will be no sponsorship. This, and I'm not trying to make money on it. This is just going to be one or two tips every week, uh, coming from me to help anyone that wants to listen. Cool. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, definitely sounds like that's going to be a great resource. So, uh, okay, George, well, that's, uh, that's all I have. I uh, just wanted to thank you for coming on. And, you know, I think, uh, you've, you've obviously got tons of resources out there that people can dig into, but I appreciate you sharing, uh, and the stories and everything too. It was awesome to hear a little bit about, uh, Joe, you know, Joe, uh, Humphreys and kind of the stories there. So, uh, uh, yeah, thanks. And we'll hopefully keep in touch with uh, everything you have going. All right. Sounds great, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Okay. See ya. And another quick shout out to my man, Tyler. Tyler, thanks. Thanks for uh, stepping up to the plate. If you want to uh, head over to wetflyswing.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, where a buck will get you started. It's uh, it's kind of a cool way just to help the show and at the same time get some uh, a little bit of bonus content over there. So check it out. There's uh, some good stuff. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.